Hebrews chapter 9 verse 8 through verse 15 the 28th talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on March 13, 2016 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2016. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 10, Translation, Installment, 2016, number 2, accompanies this talk. We continue to worry our way through the largest portion and the biggest argument, the main argument in the book of Hebrews. The question that he is addressing is, could it possibly be plausible to believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was defeated, humiliated, and killed by the Romans, is actually the Messiah? Is that plausible? And Paul wants to argue that that is plausible, and in fact, that is, in fact, what is the case and what had to be the case. So I'm going to look at the argument so far from about a height of about 40,000 feet and just get the main outline of the argument. He begins by going to Psalm 110. So here's the question. Can the Messiah possibly be one who got crucified by the Romans? He goes to Psalm 110, where Psalm 110 promises to make the Messiah a priest. You are a priest forever in accord with the order of Melchizedek. God promises to the Messiah in Psalm 110. His priestly role is clearly and unmistakably placed in contradistinction to the priests of family of Aaron, the tribe of Levi. He's a different kind of priest, according to Psalm 110. David used Melchizedek to symbolically represent the timeless, endless priesthood of the righteous Messiah, who was more important than Abraham or any other child of Abraham. But the Messiah, serving as a priest, could never happen under the old original Mosaic covenant. So, Paul argues, the promise made in Psalm 110 necessarily entails a new and different priesthood. Not the priesthood that is instituted in the old original covenant, but something else, a new and different priesthood. Well, why would you have a new and different priesthood unless the first priesthood was somehow a failure, somehow inadequate, somehow weak, somehow not accomplishing God's purposes. There wouldn't be need for a new one if the old one was adequate. So this new priesthood that is promised in Psalm 110 must be a new and superior priestly service. And why, he argues? Well, it gives... Because it is eternal and unending, and it is being served by a priest who's truly qualified, not like the Levitical priests who were just one more of us. This Messiah will be truly qualified to be a priest in a way they weren't. Then he argues, but if there's a new priesthood, there has to be a new covenant 
in the context of which that priesthood is occurring. So then he goes to Jeremiah 31, and he says, Lo and behold, Jeremiah 31 explicitly promises a new covenant. But again, God wouldn't be promising a new covenant unless there was something inadequate about the old covenant. So the old covenant must not exactly accomplish God's purposes, otherwise he wouldn't promise a new one. The question then is, what is it about the old covenant that's inadequate? And the answer that he's supplying in Hebrews is, the old original Mosaic covenant did not provide the true basis for acquiring divine mercy. The new covenant does. The old original Mosaic covenant did not. And he argues that under the old original Mosaic covenant, even the inner awareness of the worshiper, the one who comes to the temple and offers a lamb for sacrifice at the temple, that worshiper himself understands that what he's doing is not securing mercy for him, not on the basis of that animal that he just offered. Those offerings are just outward physical realities that couldn't possibly have any intrinsic appeal to God. They couldn't possibly delight God in the right kind of way. If we know who God is, we know that he's not happy with barbecue. But the new covenant, where the Messiah functions as the true high priest and offers himself up as an offering that is pleasing to God, that does provide the true basis for divine mercy for those who are followers of the Messiah. So it's by amending our understanding of how mercy is going to be attained that the inadequacy of the old covenant is fixed and repaired. And that's the new covenant. The new covenant is the repaired, altered, amended, and fixed Mosaic covenant. That seems to be what Paul has argued so far. And we're right in the middle of Paul comparing and contrasting the basis for mercy under the old covenant. We finished that, largely finished that last week. And this week we'll go on to, in contrast, how was the new covenant preferable? So let's look at, I'm going to start with paragraph 44. That would be chapter 9, verse 8. And have a couple of things to say about that paragraph before we start the next part. The inner life of the sanctified individual makes this clear that the way to propitiation for these sanctified individuals has not yet been made manifest so long as the tent system of the first covenant still has standing. This tent system up to the present time was functioning as a parable. In accord with it, both gifts and offerings are offered up that are not able to make teleos the self-awareness of the worshiper with regard to his standing before divine mercy. For these focus on nothing but foods, drinks, and various washings, requirements of a physical nature imposed until a time when things will be put right. Now let me just comment on that last phrase because I didn't do that last week before we go on. Imposed until a time when things will be put right. When will things be put right? When the Messiah comes and offers himself up to die on the cross for the sins of the world, functioning as if he were a high priest 
offering a propitiatory offering up to God. Because that, Paul is arguing, is the true and real and ultimate basis upon which any human being will ever attain mercy from God. It's on the basis of what Jesus has done and will do on their behalf. That's setting things right. Now, what exactly does he mean by set things right? He's taking the perspective that, as he will say at the end of the book of Hebrews, this same covenant here that he's calling the new covenant, he's going to call it the eternal covenant. Jesus' blood is the blood of the eternal covenant. God has always, from before the foundation of the earth, intended that the way he would draw people to himself, call them out of this broken, rebellious, immoral, depraved race of beings that we are, and prepare them to be receiving mercy from God in order that we might live forever in the eternal kingdom of God. How is he going to do that? Through the intercession of this one, the Son, the Messiah, Jesus. From before the foundation of the world, that was his purpose, that was his intention. So when he makes the original Mosaic covenant with the people of Israel, and he institutes these animal offerings and everything, it's not because those were ever intended by God to be effectively the real basis upon which people receive mercy. That's why he just pointed out the inner awareness of the worshiper himself knew that that wasn't it. I'm not offering these animal offerings because I know that will please God. It's got to be pleasing to God, and he's going to grant me mercy. No, even as we did it, Paul says, we knew that this doesn't cut it. This isn't it. Somehow, somewhere, in a way that I don't know yet, in a way that I don't understand yet, God is going to provide a new and different basis upon which he will grant me mercy. So that was never God's intention. It was always his intention that the death of Jesus would be at the center of his purposes here. That's what he means by putting things right. Right in relationship to God's eternal purposes. They are not right yet as long as the only thing that's been instituted are shadows of that which is real, then we're not really there yet. We haven't arrived. But the day came when the substance got put in place, when Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world. So, so far in 9.1 through 9.10, part 16 in my translation, what has he argued He's arguing the inadequacy of the old original Mosaic Covenant was that it didn't really provide any foundation for me to go to God and secure mercy from God on the basis of these animal offerings that I'm instructed to offer in the Mosaic Covenant. That wasn't the real basis for mercy. In part 17, he turns to the New Covenant. So what was it instead that God had in mind? So at 9.11, paragraph 45 here. But when the Messiah appeared as the high priest of the good things that were about to come, a high priest in view of the greater and more teleos tent system, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered one time into the sacred precincts, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, and found freedom from death in the final age to come. 
Now, if the blood of goats and calves and the ash of a heifer, when it sprinkles those who have been defiled, makes these holy so far as concerns the ritual purity of their outward physical being, how much more then will the blood of the Messiah, who out of an inner awareness of the age to come, offered himself up to God unblemished, cleanse our self-assessment from our death-deserving works such that we will serve the life-giving God? So indeed, on account of this, he is the mediator of a new covenant to the end that because a death has occurred for the redemption from transgressions against the first covenant, those who are called might receive the promise of the inheritance that pertains to the final age. Okay, in a nutshell, what is he saying? The Messiah's work as our high priest offering himself as a propitiatory offering gets us eternal life in a way that the animal sacrifices never did and never could. In a nutshell, that's all he's saying. But he's a bit verbose, and we need to take it apart and see what all these phrases here contribute to this. He starts off, when the Messiah appeared as the high priest of the good things that were about to come. Okay, what does he mean? Why does he say the high priest of the good things that were about to come? He has in mind the argument that he's just been making. He's been arguing from a promise in Psalm 110 and a promise in Jeremiah 31, both of which promise that something is going to be put in place. The Messiah is being promised to have a priestly role, and Israel and Judah are promised that God will inaugurate with them a new covenant. And with those new covenants, as Paul has argued, they must be fixing and repairing something that's wrong or inadequate about the old one. So these are more excellent things that are being promised. This is bigger and better and more effective than anything that was put in place by the old covenant. Those are the good things to come. So we can unpack them. The good things to come is real forgiveness of sins, a real basis for the forgiveness of sins, real justification, a real basis upon which God will grant me mercy, a real objective basis upon which God will grant me eternal life, the ultimate blessing of Abraham. Those are things that couldn't really be given and granted and secured through the old covenant. So the promise in Psalm 110, the promise in Jeremiah 31, is promising better things to come. And Jesus, the Messiah, is the high priest of those better things to come, those good things to come. He says he's a high priest in view of the greater and more teleos tent system. Okay, now how are we to take this, the greater and more teleos tent system? One way we could take this is to take the view that up in the heavens is a whole nother universe, a whole nother reality where there's a temple there that corresponds to the temple down here. This temple is shabby by comparison. That's a better temple with a better high priest and on and on and on. We could understand Paul that way, but there's really no reason to understand him that way and it makes no sense really in the context to take it that way. The reality that God has in mind is a more abstract and inward reality than the earthly temple was. In the earthly temple, you had character actors 
with furniture and implements doing religious ritual. Does God want to replace one religion with a better religion? No. God wants to place religion with this other set of forces and dynamics. And they have to do with morality. And they have to do with the inner heart and mind of us, the believer. What is my self-concept? What is my self-awareness? Am I contrite or am I proud? Am I hungering for truth or am I wallowing in deceit? What kind of person am I? What kind of human person am I? And what is going to be the basis of my acceptance before God? Is it going to be some physical thing that I give to God and I grant to God? Or is it going to be my heart? And is God going to accept my heart on the basis of some physical thing that some priest is giving him? Or is it something else, namely the intercession of a human individual who was such a sterling individual that he was sinless, he was blameless, and he was a delight to God the Father? Jesus saying to the Father, I want Jack in my kingdom. There's something substantial about that in a way that doesn't exist with a priest throwing a slab of meat on the altar and burning it. That's nothing. But I can understand how substantial it is that the very Son of God himself could appeal to the transcendent author of all reality and say, I want Jack in my kingdom, and that's going to get somewhere. That's going to accomplish something. Well, that's the tent system that is truly teleos. Now, I leave that untranslated. We've seen that word over and over and over again, but let me just remind you what it means. Teleos, a telos is the intended result or intended purpose that someone sets out to achieve. If something is teleos, it is something that has achieved that intended purpose or result. So what is the teleos tent system? The teleos tent system is that set of realities that really and finally and ultimately accomplish God's purposes for mankind as opposed to not fulfilling those purposes. The Mosaic tent system was not teleos. It did not fulfill God's promises for bringing into his people a group of people that he would show mercy to. The tent system didn't do that. The Mosaic tent system, tabernacle, didn't do that. But there's a tent system, and I put that in quotes, there's a tent system that does. It has nothing to do with tents. It has nothing to do with curtains. It has nothing to do with tent pegs. It has nothing to do with any physical reality at all. It's completely and totally abstract, invisible human realities. The human reality of the human heart. The human reality of a human messiah who is going to be my advocate and is going to intercede for me and is going to appeal to God for mercy. What Paul's saying is, it's not really a tent system, but it's what the tent system was a shadow of. It's the reality that the tent system was supposed to stand in for, kind of symbolically and representationally. So I hope you understand the distinction. A little bit later we'll see where Paul makes this explicit that the tent system does not resemble the realities that get you and me eternal life. They don't look like 
the realities that get me eternal life. They're only a very vague shadow of them. They're not, as Paul will say in a second, they're not the exact image of them. They are but a shadow of them. Okay? So don't get distracted by the fact that what's going on in the Old Testament, I can't see a one-to-one correspondence between what they were doing with the blood of animals and the rituals they were performing with the blood of animals and what you're telling saves me in Jesus. I don't see any one-to-one correspondence. Exactly. Where did God ever tell us there was a one-to-one correspondence? He didn't. And that's what Paul's getting at, is that there's no one-to-one correspondence. What confuses us is thousands of years of Christian tradition has perhaps encouraged us to see a one-to-one correspondence. But God never said there would be. This is a very rough approximation, very inadequate, very incomplete representation of how we actually get saved in Jesus. But what's confusing is Paul is playing with us here the high priest in view of the greater and more teleos tent system, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. To some people, it's going to make it sound like he thinks there literally is another literal tent system in the heavens. That's not his point. It's not what he's saying. So when the Messiah appeared as the high priest of the good things that were about to come, he entered one time into the sacred precincts. And again, there are no sacred precincts. Literally. He's working with the metaphor here. But he entered one time into the sacred precincts. Maybe even it would be better to put that into the present tense. He enters one time into the sacred precincts. I'm not sure that this should be in the past tense. It doesn't really make all that much difference. But what corresponds to the high priest going in on the Day of Atonement? I think what corresponds to that is what otherwise gets called the day of judgment. That's when it's going to count. That's when it matters that I have a high priest interceding for me, appealing to God for mercy. And when is that going to happen? It's going to happen on the day at crunch time when the decision is going to be made, will Jack go into eternal life or will Jack go to his death and condemnation? On that day, that decision is going to be made. And on that day, what's going to make all the difference in the world is what does Jesus want? Does Jesus want Jack to come into the kingdom with him? Or does Jesus think that Jack should be condemned and go to his death? Well, what's the counterpart of that? That's like the high priest going into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and making the appropriate offering taking the blood from the offering and smearing it on the mercy seat. That's sort of analogous. So he entered or he enters one time into the sacred precincts, the one time that counts, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Okay, We know what the priests in the Mosaic Covenant did. They took the blood of the animals that were offered. Jesus goes with his own blood. Okay, again, notice what Paul's doing here. He's playing with the metaphor. This does not imply that there is something about the literal physical blood of Jesus that was critical to what he was accomplishing. Not if we understand what Paul's doing here. 
Certainly you could take it that way, but that's to misunderstand the paragraph. It's to misunderstand what he's doing. Just like there aren't really any sacred precincts in the heavens, there isn't literally blood that Jesus is bringing either. The blood simply represents how the high priest appeals to God for mercy. How did he appeal to God for mercy? He took the bowl of blood that he collected from the slit throat of the bowl, and he takes it in and smears it on the mercy seat. That's tantamount to standing before God and saying, will you be merciful to us? Will you be merciful to your people? Well, what's the counterpart to that? Jesus is literally going to, even that's not literal probably, but we could imagine him literally standing before God and saying, God, will you be merciful to these my people, my disciples? Will you be merciful to them? So on what basis is he asking God to be merciful? On the basis of the fact that he was obedient to God to be willing to voluntarily go to the cross and die, literally give up his life, just like the sacrificial animal had to sacrifice its life, give up its life. He literally gave up and sacrificed his life as an act of obedience to God and as an act of love for you and me so that he would be pleasing to the Father. His obedience was pleasing. His godlike love was pleasing. His sinless life was pleasing to him so that he might be to the end pleasing to God. That's what qualifies him to be able to go before God and be heard when he requests of God, will you be merciful to my people, okay? That's what he's getting at by not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. It was on the basis of his own sacrificial death that he made his appeal. And what resulted, or what will result, what will result is... By that means, he finds freedom from death for those who are his disciples, for those who believe in him, for those who follow him. He finds freedom for death in the final age to come. In other words, eternal life, what we call eternal life. So, very simply, he's saying the old covenant didn't accomplish that, but in the new covenant, we have a new priest operating under the terms of a new covenant who effectively, successfully, objectively secures divine mercy from God and the blessing of eternal life for those who believe in Jesus. Okay, he goes on. Now, if the blood of goats and calves and the ash of a heifer, when it sprinkles those who have been defiled, makes them holy so far as concerns the ritual purity of their outward physical being. Okay, now what is he talking about there? I don't know. (laughs) I'm not a student of the Old Testament. I'm certainly not a student of the Old Testament rituals. But the image that I have, and I think this gets reflected in some things I've read in the Old Testament, is the priest would do various things when he collected the blood and at times collected the ashes of a heifer. Some of you who know more than I do about this stuff can correct me. It may be that that's referring to one event, when Moses inaugurated the covenant? I don't know. But he would smear blood on his own earlobe. He would smear blood on the earlobe of the worshiper. He would smear blood on the forehead of the worshiper. He would smear blood on the corner of the altar. 
And in some rituals, he would flick it at the person. That's what Moses did in inaugurating the, the thing, is he took a branch and flicked the water and, can't remember, but he dipped it in blood and flicked it on the people and on all the various implements that were going to be used in the temple and so on. And I think that's what he means by sprinkled, is that ritual act of flicking it either with a branch or with one's fingers. He says, if that works, those things that have been defiled makes them holy. Okay, what do we mean make them holy? Well, holy is the opposite of defiled here. What does it mean for something to be defiled? What does it mean for a person to be defiled or for a garment to be defiled or for an implement to be defiled? We're talking about now the worship in the tabernacle or in the temple. There's a difference between a spoon and a holy spoon. There's a difference between a candlestick and a holy candlestick. There's a difference between a a human being who has the right to march into the temple and participate in the ritual of the temple and a person who doesn't have that right. What's the difference? Well, you have to be holy if you are going to participate or be a part of or be an implement used in a ritual that has to do with God. You don't just take a piece of silverware out of the drawer and give it to a Levite and say, use that. Everything that's going to be used for the purpose of serving God needs to be set apart for that. It needs to be distinctive to that end. And that's what it means to be holy. So if you were to offer an offering in the temple, you had to be cleansed first. You don't, you're not just running late. You jump off the bus, run up the temple, grab a lamb on the way up there and participate in the ritual. You need to take a cleansing bath before you dare participate in that ritual. Only holy people and only holy things are qualified to be able to participate in the rituals of the temple. If you've gone out and lived your life, your ordinary life, you become defiled. Common, ordinary, not distinctive any longer. So you need to have all that ordinariness symbolically washed off of you before you are holy enough to participate. Well, one of the ways that you are made holy is by being sprinkled with the blood of goats, calves, and the ash of a heifer. That makes you holy that sets you apart as distinctive enough that you can now serve God or be related to the service of God, okay? So Paul's argument is, if the blood of goats, calves, and the ash of a heifer sprinkled on will cleanse you ritually, notice that has nothing to do with morality, has nothing to do with guilt, has nothing to do with sin. You can be a complete, total sinner and be cleansed through these rituals to be able to participate in the temple service. This is not reaching inside your heart. This is only on the external body. If that is counted by God as making you holy with respect, making you ritually holy, then how much more will the blood of the Messiah, let me skip the parenthesis there, cleanse our self-assessment 
of our death-deserving works such that we will serve the life-giving God. Okay? So a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The blood of goats and calves and so on, okay, God accepted that as making you holy, distinctive, set apart, qualified to participate in temple worship. But of course, that's not what we ultimately need. We need something more and different than that to set us apart for a destiny in eternal life. Well, if the blood of bulls and goats could do the former, it's the blood of the Messiah that does the latter. Okay? How much more will the blood of the Messiah cleanse our self-assessment from our death-deserving works such that we will serve the life-giving God? Okay, why does he say cleanse our self-assessment? It's sunedesis in Greek, usually translated conscience by our English translations, but that's very misleading because you and I have learned to have a kind of Freudian definition of conscience. It's not our conscience that is being cleansed. It's more like what we would call our self-concept or our self-evaluation or our self-assessment. That is the question that we all have to ask ourselves is, in relationship to divine mercy, how am I situated? Am I going to get it or am I not going to get it? Is God going to grant me mercy or is he not going to grant me mercy? Well, on some basis, we're going to assess ourselves and decide, yes, indeed, God is going to grant me mercy, or we may conclude, no way, God is not going to grant me mercy. If you have a self-assessment that reports to you, you are going to receive mercy, then it has been cleansed. If you have a self-evaluation and a self-assessment that says you're not going to receive mercy, then it's defiled. And what is it that defiles it? What he calls Most of your English translations have dead works, but again, I think that's misleading. I think it would be better rendered death-deserving works. What is it that defiles my conscience? My own self-knowledge, my own self-concept of what an evil, wicked, selfish, rebellious, depraved person I am. I don't deserve life. I don't deserve blessing from God. I deserve to be destroyed. Well, what's going to change my perception of myself? I'm somebody who doesn't deserve a blessing to, but I'm going to receive a blessing. It can only be by coming to recognize the irrelevance of my evil. Only when I recognize that the evil that is very really there and is truly objectively a part of me, is going to be irrelevant to the outcome of my destiny, only then have those death-deserving deeds been washed away, cleansed. So washed away is the equivalent of being rendered irrelevant, irrelevant to the outcome, irrelevant to my destiny. How are they washed away? How are they rendered irrelevant? They're rendered irrelevant when I realize the advocate that I have going to bat for me. This high priest, this Jesus, who's going to appeal to God for mercy for me, is a powerful advocate who has God's ear. And there's absolutely no reason in the world to not expect that if he advocates for me, God will overlook, pass over, ignore, 
consider irrelevant my sins and will give me the life I don't deserve rather than the death and destruction that I do deserve. And that's what he means by the cleansing of our self-assessment, conscience, sunedesis, from our death-deserving deeds, with the result that we will serve the life-giving God. He didn't have to add that, but notice that my self-assessment is a subjective reality. It's how I'm understanding myself. It's what, how I'm thinking about myself. But what Paul is really arguing for is an objective reality. It really doesn't matter what I think. It matters what God thinks, ultimately. My self-assessment is cleansed of death-deserving works such that I can gain the confidence that I'm going to receive mercy from God. But Paul adds, lest there be any confusion, and God agrees with that because he allows me to go on existing in eternity, serving the life-giving God. I think that's what he means by, so that we serve the life-giving God. It's a way of describing eternal life. I'm going to exist, go on living forever, serving the God who gives life. Why? Because God's going to grant me that mercy that I have become confident I will get by the intercession and advocacy of Jesus. Okay? So indeed, he says, on account of this, he's the mediator of a new covenant, or a mediator in the context of the new covenant, if you will. He's the mediator. In what sense is he the mediator? The same way the Levitical priest in the Mosaic covenant was the mediator between me and God, who took the offerings to God, offered up the offerings to God on my behalf. Jesus now is the mediator in this new covenant, with this new arrangement for how to interact with sin in relationship to God. He's the one who's doing the interceding and mediating. So he becomes the mediator of a new covenant. So notice what Paul's doing. He's connecting it now with the argument that he just finished making in the last chapter. Jeremiah 31 promises a new covenant. A new covenant means the old one wasn't working, was inadequate, wasn't really done yet, wasn't really, it didn't really accomplish God's purposes yet, so there had to be a new covenant. Well, what's that new covenant look like? It looks like putting Jesus in a position to be the mediator between me and God. That's the new covenant. So indeed, on account of that, he is the mediator of the new covenant. To the end that, because a death has occurred for the redemption from transgressions against the first covenant, those who are called might receive the promise of the inheritance that pertains to the final age. What's the promise of the inheritance that pertains to the final age? That's the original promise made to Abraham. That's the promise of eternal life. It's the promise of having a place in the eternal kingdom of God in the final age to come. Who's going to receive that? He says, the called, those who are called. This is Paul's concept, his view of election. God has before the foundation of the earth intended a certain set of individuals to have this be the outcome of their existence. They are the ones who are going to receive that inheritance. That's the outcome of his mediating for us. To what end does he mediate for us? To the end that those who are called might receive the promise of the inheritance that pertains to the final age. So he intercedes, Father, grant to Jack eternal life.
in the final age. But he adds there, parenthetically, because a death has occurred for the redemption from transgressions against the first covenant, those who are called might receive the promise of the inheritance that pertains to the final age. Now, one of two things is going on here. Either he's actually focused on the Jews in the Old Testament in the time of Moses, but in any case, even if he isn't focused exclusively on them, he wants to make it clear that he's including them. And what's the significance of this? He is explicitly rejecting the doctrine or rejecting the notion that back in the old days, back in the days of Moses, the way you got eternal life, the blessing of Abraham, was by going to the temple and bringing animal sacrifices, and that's how you got eternal life. And then Jesus comes along and everything changes. Now the rules have changed. Now everything is different. Now, Paul is saying this works retroactively. This works retrospectively. How is it that God will grant eternal life to the worshiper in the time of Moses who brought his animal sacrifices to the temple and offered them? Because the death of Jesus has occurred for the redemption of the transgressions against that first original covenant. It's Jesus' death who's bringing redemption from those things, not the death of the animals. Okay, questions? Jack, we have a old covenant that was a foreshadowing of a new covenant, but the old covenant, those that lived under the old covenant, it was set up so that they could know God, so that they could learn what God stood for, how he wanted them to live, and so forth. Obviously, there were people that got that right and had a heart, a true heart for God. Mm-hmm. Now we have a, a new covenant where we can understand what God's purposes is for granting mercy. But I guess the bottom line is, <laughs> is the new covenant easier to come to terms with God than the old covenant? Is it better in the sense that it's maybe easier or to understand the purposes of God and to come to terms with God, or isn't it? You understand what kind of what I'm saying? If it's I a new so. covenant, how's it better for us? I, what I'm, okay. I guess that would be a better way of saying it. Okay. Because it's realer. It's more real. It's more substantial. It conforms more to the actual purposes of God and how he's doing things. So it's more plausible. We modern people of all should understand this. When you read the Old Testament, don't you go, this is weird. Don't you think God is a weird God that wants you to kill a bunch of sheep and goats and give them the blood and burn the carcass? Don't you go, this is just weird. Weird in a way that rightly understood, the new covenant is not weird. Now granted, what we as Christians have done with the new covenant, we manage to turn it into equally weird stuff as the old covenant, granted. But not if we really understand what's going on if we really understand the dynamics and how it works, that what God is doing is sending me a savior. He's sending me a heroic individual who really has clout with God, who can intercede for me and advocate for me and can take me into his kingdom on the force of his quality of his being. Well, we can understand that, can't we? That's not crazy. It may not be true. I think it is. may not be true, but it's not crazy stuff. 
And what does his death have to do with it? Well, that's part of how he showed his mettle. That's part of how he revealed what a quality person he was as a creature before the living God. He obeyed to the point of death, even death on the cross. He loved the world such that he was willing to give his life for them. We're seeing God-like divine qualities coming out of this human being, Jesus, that is unprecedented. And you and I couldn't even hope to hold a candle to the quality of person that Jesus was. So it's plausible. It makes sense to me that my eternal life and my salvation ultimately hinges on him having my back, right? You go back to the Old Testament, and what's Paul going to argue? I'm a genuinely God-fearing Jew. I love God. I want to serve him. I want to know him. I look at the covenant. It tells me, take these animals to the temple. I do that. I walk away from the temple going, boy, I hope that works. Really, God? That's what you want? And he's going to argue in the next chapter. We're not there yet, but he's going to argue in the next chapter. David figured out, that's not what you want. This is not what you're into. You've got to figure out what you want because this ain't it. But there's the confidence you are going to give me what you want. You are going to supply what it is that is delightful to you, what is pleasing to you, what is acceptable to you that can serve as the basis for God granting me mercy. So why did David come to the conclusion? Gifts and offerings and whole bird offerings you don't want. How did he come to that conclusion? Well, because it was so implausible to think that the God that he was coming to know and get to know could be bought off with barbecue. It just doesn't make any sense to David. So it's the implausibility of that that led him to realize something else is going on here. I'll wait to see how it is you make this happen. I guess I struggle with how the Jewish, if I lived in those times and was doing the sacrifices, even though if they didn't make sense to me, I would assume that the way that I've kind of understood this, the whole process of sacrifices and what was expected of people, that if you screwed up on doing that, you could expect God to be displeased with you if you gave a bum offering or whatever. And so what seems crazy to us. I'm just thinking if I lived those times, even if I didn't think the offerings made sense or whatever, it seems like they were, I would still be expected to carry them out the way that God wanted them to be carried out. Yeah, and I think you would. I think that's David's perspective. David, who wrote Psalm 40, didn't stop offering offerings, I don't think. You don't want these, but he keeps offering them. Why does he keep offering them? Out of obedience to the covenant. But he realizes that what he's doing is not why he's going to receive the mercy that God is going to grant him. Now, the other thing you need to keep in mind, and this is coming up in the next chapter, we'll get there in a couple weeks. What's coming up in the next chapter is the thing that's constant between the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant is the contrition of the human heart. That's the only condition that God places. Who is going to receive mercy? the person who has a broken and contrite heart. Well, you can have a broken and contrite heart in the context of the Mosaic Covenant, and you can have a broken and contrite heart in the context of the New Covenant, and it gets you exactly the same thing. In the New Covenant, we know how that gets us eternal life. In the Old Covenant, you're left wondering how, but you know somehow it's going to work. 
the new covenant isn't an easier way. Uh, no, no, it's not easier. No, because the same obstacle is there in the old covenant and the new covenant. Do I have a heart in rebellion against God, or am I willing to bow the knee to God? That's the same under both covenants. Yeah. A couple of technical things you said about obedience makes a lot of sense because coming here and doing these things, the things you're doing don't do anything, but showing up indicates a heart right. that wants to do whatever God wants you to do right. that will do whatever God wants it to do. Right. And you walk away maybe thinking, it wasn't the lamb. I'm thinking it was me being there and just admitting the truth. Right. But, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Some of them had to figure that out. Yeah. Now, just for the sake of clarity, yeah. yes, it's just me showing up. But we do have to make a distinction between the condition <clears throat> that I am meeting that's qualifying me for mercy and the reason God is granting mercy to me. Those are not the same thing. My heart is the condition that I meet that makes me fit for God's mercy. But God does not grant me mercy on the basis of my contrition. You see what I'm saying? It's not because I am contrite that God somehow sees it appropriate and fitting that I be given mercy. The basis for me being given mercy is Jesus' intercession. So it's important to keep that distinction in mind. To whom does God give mercy? To those who are broken and contrite in heart under the old covenant, under the new covenant. Why does he grant them mercy? Because Jesus wants them, both under the Mosaic covenant and under the new covenant, because the high priest is advocating for me. You talked about changing dead works to death-deserving works, Uh works of death, Uh to serve the living God. Is that the same living as in living waters? Yes. The lifing God? So you go from death-giving works to the life-giving God. Yeah. Okay. And in that same passage, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, and this is my question, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish? Oh, I skipped that. Sorry. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I skipped that. Yeah. yeah. Notice I translate it differently. Spirit sometimes means... It's just any kind of subjective inner awareness, and that's the way I would take it here. So I called it an inner awareness, and eternal is other pertaining to the ion, that word. So what is it the awareness is of? The age to come, the age. So what is he talking about here? I think he's talking about Jesus' motive. So how much more then will the blood of the Messiah, who the Messiah, out of an inner awareness of the age to come, offered himself up to God unblemished. Why did Jesus do what he did? Jesus did what he did because he had a clue. He got it. He understood reality. He understood that we were part of this large narrative that had a last chapter, and the last chapter was this final eternal age to come, And he wanted a part to play in that final eternal age to come. And in fact, his inner awareness would have included his knowledge of the promise that you're going to be king of the kingdom in that eternal final age to come. It's because of that that he lived the life that he did and voluntarily went to the death that he did. Paul in Philippians puts it, He endured the cross for the joy set before him. Or is that coming up later in Hebrews? 
One of them says he endured the cross for the joy set before him. Philippians says he became obedient even to the point of death. Therefore, God exalted him. So why was he obedient? Because he wanted to be exalted, just like he knew he would be if he were obedient. Later in Hebrews, he's going to say he endured the cross for the joy set before him. It was his existential clarity about what was promised him as a destiny that motivated him to offer himself up to God unblemished. He went to the cross for the reward that would follow. So what's translated through there? I'm sorry, where's the through? It's verse 14 in ESV. I'm sorry, read the whole thing. More will the blood of Christ through. Out of. I'm translating that out of. I think he's indicating motivation. What, what words are you translating? What, Greek words? Yeah. Dia. That's right. Yeah. So with the Jews of today don't follow the Mosaic Covenant like they used to, what transferred that for them? You're saying if they don't, Today well, the, they don't sacrifice bulls and lambs. Right. Anymore. Okay. So what transferred? I know it's really not related directly to this text, but it, I am kind of curious what happened to the Jews in terms of not following the Mosaic Covenant like that. From their perspective, or from say Paul's perspective? Well, from Paul's perspective, the fact that not offering offerings is not problematic because that's been replaced. It's the death of Jesus. From their perspective, do you know Rusty? Yeah. This just came up in something I heard or, or was talking to somebody, but that's a huge issue for them because the minute the temple went down, whether they wanted to or not, they couldn't follow the Mosaic Covenant because there was no place to go with their sacrifice. So I think the way they see it now is they've taken the synagogue worship as a temporary, I don't think they would call it a replacement, but a placeholder until the temple gets rebuilt and they can go start doing the Mosaic Covenant like they had supposed to have been doing all along. So something like they offer a prayer in the synagogue and God counts it as if it's an offering offered. Because it's the best they got. Because it's the best they got. It's the other reason why the wall is so incredibly important because it's Mm -hmm. the one little piece of that that they can, to some extent, do something that, that is surrounding the temple. Your comment about somehow David figured this out brought to mind some of the things that that we've been studying in our Deuteronomy class. Some of the things that David realized weren't without precedent in the sense that uh, Moses himself in Deuteronomy argues that the sort of God that Yahweh is is not the sort of God who can be bribed. He can't be bought off. There's nothing that you have to offer that he needs from you. And, And that's in the context of the favor that he's shown you as a nation, but presumably the same logic holds for his mercy. You can't buy it. His mercy is given to you simply because he chooses to do so on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there is the precedent of Moses securing mercy for the people on their behalf when God wants to wipe them out, advocating for them and God saying, I will grant your petition and not wipe my people out, not because of anything they've done, but because I am pleased with your advocacy, which, A, is a really interesting shadow. What is to come with Jesus? That basis for mercy being on the advocacy of one in whom God is pleased. And on the other hand, it begs the question, well, what about Moses' advocacy was pleasing to God? Certainly, the fact that Moses makes his plea based upon the character of God himself 
But also, it begs the question, is Moses' plea coming out of a place of being broken and contrite before God? Please grant this, not because of anything that I have or that we have as people to sway you or to recommend ourselves, but because you are the sort of God who is merciful, etc., etc. So perhaps David's looking at that and saying, what was it about Moses that perhaps God found pleasing? You're not asking me, are you? I guess that's a rhetorical question. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's great. Let me just highlight, piggyback on one thing you said. Notice, in the light of what Colin is saying, how critical it is that we know God. If we don't know God, we're going to get his requirements all screwed up. We're going to misunderstand and misconstrue what he likes, what he doesn't like, what he wants, what he doesn't want, what's valuable to him, what's not valuable to him, because we don't know him. We don't really even have a clue who God is. I think that's implicit in Paul's argument. How is it that the worshipers realize that the way to eternal life has not yet been revealed when the first temple still has standing? Well, because they know God, and they know that foods and drinks and washings can't possibly be something that is so pleasing to him that it's going to cause him to be merciful toward a sinner. That makes no sense, because what does God eat? What does God drink? What does God care about the cleanness of the body and that kind of thing? None of that makes any sense if you know who God is. So the more we grasp both the holiness, the righteousness of God on the one hand, and the transcendence of God on the other hand, then that puts us in a better position to evaluate what it is that's important to him and valuable to him and what isn't. But if we don't have that right, we're going to think that stuff is important to God that can't possibly be important to him. And that's when we get all religious on him. We get religious on him because we think that religion would be important to him. But if we know who God is, why would we think religion is important to him? makes no sense. It's the substantial inwardness of a human being that counts. It's the humanity of a human being that counts, not the outward robot-like actions that we might perform. Any final question? Which means when they're doing what we were talking a little while ago about coming in and obeying, it says something about you and you're going through the ritual and making the sacrifice. That sacrifice is no, still no substitute. Right. You can't buy him off. Right. God, I offended my neighbor or hurt my child, whatever. Here, I'm sorry, but it's not take this in substitute. I'll do one good act to make up for my bad act, right? Right, exactly. And you've got to understand that. Right. See, I think that was one of the mistakes that the Jews in the time of Jesus and Paul had made. They thought that offering the offerings was so intrinsically valuable that it was actually a form of righteousness for them to give them. It wasn't an appeal to God to be merciful toward my unrighteousness. It was actually my righteousness showing that I would do that. And both Paul and Jesus are outraged by that perspective. They just don't have a clue. Well, one of the things that would keep me from making the mistake of thinking that by offering an animal as an offering, I'm being righteous, is to know who God is. How on earth can this have any currency with God knowing who God is? That makes no sense. I'm not giving him anything that he wants. I'm not giving anything to him that has any inherent intrinsic value to him. So obviously I'm not being righteous to do that because... I'm not in any way being, doing anything pleasing to him. But it's easy to see how not knowing who God is, not even paying any attention to who God is, you could begin to think that 
I'm really impressive. Did you see all those offerings that I brought to the temple for God? He's got to be impressed with me. Just a quick comment on Logan's comment. They're not being righteous, but they are being obedient. Would you say that? Well, it's semantics here. They are being righteous because why are they doing it? Out of a foggy, vague, incomplete understanding, they're doing the only thing that has been revealed to them to do in order to serve God. Agreeing that they aren't being righteous, but I think they were being obedient. Well, what I'm saying is you could even call that righteousness in one sense of the word righteous. Yeah, they're being righteous because they're displaying a heart for God that is the heart of a righteous person as opposed to a rebellious person. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as people who are desperately in need of the advocacy of your son, Jesus. Our lives are filled with shallow, self-serving, superficial passions and desires and projects and our pride and our busyness that we fill our lives up with instead of wanting to know you and wanting to know your truth. All of this is just symptomatic of how broken and corrupt and really wicked and evil we are. Lord, we know that none of us will stand if your son does not ask for mercy on our behalf. Lord, we ask that you would give us that understanding, give us that insight into how this works and who you are and what you're up to, what your purposes are in this world, that we might get in line with them and live with you in the light of that truth instead of all the lies and counterfeits that are out there. And Lord, in the times ahead that look like they're going to be filled with various kinds of grief and sorrow and tragedy and disruption and confusion and chaos, Lord, give us the wisdom to know that all we can do and all we should do is live our lives in obedience to you and in in trusting you. You you haven't promised us happiness. You haven't promised us a life here and now that's full and rich. You've promised us an eternity that's full and rich, but not a life that's full and rich. Lord, help us keep that perspective as we go through the days ahead. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.